This episode is brought to you by The Wanna Summit, the one day that's going to change your life. For more information, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And today, we're tackling the big issues. Now, we're not going to hold anything back and we're not going to kowtow around anything. We're not going to be treading on eggshells on anything when it comes to today's topic. Today's topic is going to be all about our food, our mindset, and how it affects our moods and our behaviours. Now, we're going to be leaving no stone unturned today. We're talking everything from our uh, bad moods to our bad poos. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're not, we're not holding anything back. One of the things that, or, yeah, this is, this is just one of the things that we really want to make sure that we cover is looking at how the foods that we eat actually affect and influence the way that we think on a day-to-day basis. You know, Cindy, this has been something that has affected me personally, and it's been such an eye-opener since I've started doing my own personal research. One thing I think is super, super cool and super important is that we actually take responsibility for our own learning as humans. You know, we have so much information out there from our doctors, from our, um, our educators about what food we should be eating. And we don't actually have the contrasting information and education out there about how those foods are actually affecting us. And for me personally, what I've known is when I eat highly processed, highly sugary foods, I didn't realize, but I get anxious. And I also didn't realize that I get moody. And my partner, Matt, cops the brunt of it. But when I'm eating clean, like, you know, having gorgeous green smoothies and beautiful, nutritious food that I actually know everything that's in that meal, and I do that for three or four days, you know, I can't even begin to tell you how clear my thinking is and how lucid I feel. I had no idea the contrast until I actually set myself up to experience the contrast, to do the research and to do the experimentation myself. So... Today we're going to be talking about how our food not only inhibits our ability to perform and to function, but we're actually going to be talking about how the existing and current education out there flies in the face of what we know to be actual fact, what our medical doctors are advising us to do, what our naturopaths are advising us to do, and how we're all being conditioned to be this I guess we're all kind of like guinea pigs. We don't know what food does to us. We don't know what chemicals do to us. Although the upside now, Kim, I reckon you'd probably be able to talk about this a lot today, is the research that's been done and discoveries that have been um, revealed or uncovered about what different substances are actually now starting to do with the body. And the body and the mind are so incredibly connected. The thing is, is that we've always separated the body and the mind. We don't seem to see them as a combination together. But the way uh, science and medicine has actually looked at the body is in particles or parts. So it says, well, you know, you've got to go to your cardiologist if you've got a heart problem. You go to your oncologist if you've got cancer. You go to your rheumatologist if you've got arthritis. You go to your endocrinologist if you've got hormone problems. So all of these things, we part mentalize the body Mm. and who do we go to for when we've got you know psychological problems or or problems that are mental Um, we go to our psychologist or our psychiatrist you know you go to your GP and they'll just go well we'll just send you to a psychiatrist or they may just give you antidepressants Mm. and and that has been the thought is that we should be just going on antidepressants if we're depressed but the, the question I think we need to ask is, well, why have we got so much mental illness in today's society? Why is depression on the uptake? You know, I remember 15, 20 years ago, it was one in 11 within Australia, and that probably is the same between England and, and throughout the United States and New Zealand, but it was one in 11 had a mental illness. Within two decades, 
we're basically at one in five and growing. And that's who's diagnosed versus not who's diagnosed. And it's schizophrenia and psychosis and depression and anxiety and ADD and ADHD and you know, bipolar is now a huge one. Mm. So it's time to stop doing what we're doing because it's obviously not working. It's mm. getting worse. It's not getting better. And my, my whole research is about let's look at the body as a whole. Let's put the brain and the body back together. Let's put all the parts back together and let's treat the human, not the parts. But do you think sometimes, guys, that it's, it's not just the medical, the scientific fraternity that's to blame here? I mean, I look at it sometimes from a, some of my clients that I've seen over the years. People are wanting an instant fix. So they want to almost feel like they can trust somebody who's going to tell them what the problem is. Then they have to take the drugs in order to fix the problem that they know that they had. So there you go. See, I've got a problem and now I've got the drug that the doctor's given me. I think sometimes our demand for instant um, repair or instant wanting to feel well or instant wanting to, to get over whatever is we've got, we're not acknowledging the body enough to actually heal itself or we're wanting instant fixes. So we go to the doctors, they give us the drug and then we go away again. It's almost like it's a bad aid approach obviously but I don't think we can solely blame the medical or the scientific fraternities because it's through the demand of us as customers clients patients that we're wanting this instant fix I can only talk about it from skincare for example people will go you know I met a lady this is a classic story I met a lady sitting there I was getting a vein of mine looked at um, you'll both appreciate this there was a lady sitting next to me I said to her, oh my gosh, what are you here for? You know, you start chatting in the waiting room. She said, oh, I'm coming for my, my Botox fix. And I looked at her and I said to her, oh my gosh, how old are you? And she said, I'm 31. And I went, you look stunning. And she said, no, no, I look really tired. I said, no, trust me, you look amazing. And then she goes, oh, I just look a bit tired, a bit run down. And I said, do you mind me asking how much it's going to cost you to have this Botox treatment? And she said it was $750. This is in New Zealand. So when she had it, I looked at her and I said, do you realise you can go on to some amazing travel website and you could get seven days in Fiji for that <laughs> price? And you'd probably come back looking as great as you would with Botox. So, you know, it's, I kind of look at it and, I, and I, I just don't understand why we would want to put this botulism into our face and actually create some sort of chemical imbalance perhaps when we don't know the long-term effects. So my question to you guys today is, why are we doing this? How do we get results? And who the heck do we trust? You know, I just want to make a comment about that. You know, you said that because we're in this, in this society that wants instant gratification and we want instant solutions, we want to be fixed... I want to add something to that, and this is this could be quite controversial, but I don't actually make any apologies for it. I don't pull any punches around it. I have a belief that we go to doctors for the large part because we actually don't want to be responsible. Mm. We don't actually want to be responsible for thinking that we've created the imbalance that's occurring in our body. Through the choices we make. Correct. So we then go to the doctor and we say, yes, see, I have bronchitis. Yes, see, I've got... Uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, yes, see, I've got um, irritable bowel. We actually want to have a diagnosis because in the concept of that diagnosis, it removes all responsibility from us to repair and heal ourselves, but it also removes all responsibility from us for having created the illness in the first place. Mm. And this is the part that I think could be quite controversial and I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm really going to look forward to see, hearing our, um, you know, our listeners' feedback on this. But I actually ascribe to the view that everything that manifests in the body starts in the mind. So the mind is ill first because we believe that we're not good enough or we're dying to escape something or we feel inadequate in some way. And then what starts in the mind manifests in the body and then we go to the doctor and we get the magic pill and it gives us an excuse to not be responsible for the fact that I created it, therefore I can fix it. But if, a ma if the doctor gives me the magic pill, then it's almost like a justification to society that says, yes, see, I have irritable bowel syndrome, there is something wrong with me and I'm not responsible. And it takes away my, my power. power and mm -hmm. my responsibility to participate in my own healing. I can actually say, though, what I have seen in the last couple of years is a massive shift around that because more and more people are getting more and more educated because of the kind of information that's being provided now. And I think that there's a lot of people who are waking up and who are taking responsibility for it. And that's really encouraging. 
But Karen, don't you think that's the people you're associated with and the people that come to your seminars or might come and listen to what I'm saying? You know, I think we're in a little bit of a, a balloon or a little Bubble. bit of a cocoon, you know, because I think that too. I think, well, isn't everybody, isn't this happening? Mm. But when you actually get out into the, the world that's not making these changes and taking the responsibility... It's a huge world out there that aren't. And I would guarantee that the people that are listening to this podcast are part of that group that is ready for change. Because the people that don't want to change and want the quick fix won't listen to this. Yeah, that's so true. Mm -hmm. Or they will have switched off by now. (laughs) (laughs) They would have done the whole bugger you. I'm not responsible and I'm not listening. You both brought up a really good point. For me as a therapist a number of years ago, I had a lady referred to me. She was covered in psoriasis. She was overweight. She had nursed her husband to his death with cancer. She was an ex-nurse and her daughter tragically had been killed in a car accident. Um, six months after that. So what was so awful about it is you could imagine the stress she was in. I had one of the biggest ahas and epiphanies of my life with this story. Um, I treated her for six, eight weeks. I was using certain oils. I was using relaxation therapy, polarity therapy. I was doing reflexology with her. I was doing all sorts of different natural alternative complementary therapies, as well as listening to her. As many of you would appreciate, as therapists, we really do hear a lot of people's issues. Um, What was interesting, after eight weeks of treating her, there had not been a significant change for me. She enjoyed coming, but she was still in that same space, not a lot of improvement. So I rang the doctor who referred her to me, and I said, look, I'm really sorry, uh, Doc, Uh, I cannot fix her. And he said something that I have never forgotten. He turned around and he said, oh, so since when did you become God? Oh, wow. Yeah, and I said to him, I beg your pardon, I was quite gobsmacked. And he goes, listen, I referred her to you to be the vehicle and the conduit for change for her. I did not refer her to you to fix it. No one fixes someone else. You are the healer of your own manifestations and illnesses. I've never forgotten it. And it was and one the of doctor those, said that? Uh, wow. Doctor in Melbourne. He was brilliant. And I worked wow. very closely with him. So they are out there. There are wonderful, holistic, medical interactive doctors that are unbelievably supportive of this way of thinking no i agree they're they are out there but they're few and far between Mm, because someone mm. will ring me and say well where's one in my area and i might be able to say one in a town of two hundred fifty thousand, and 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 it and it's hard it really is hard but you're right it is growing uh, definitely but i just believe that we're in a little bit of a bubble and we see it more and more because who's going to pay the money to make changes in their lives people that are looking for mm. uh, something new something that's out there and we we're actually learning that if we go to a doctor then you will expect a diagnosis and you will expect a pill mm. that that is what what is happening out there so if you do not want a diagnosis and you don't want a pill and you want something different you need to go somewhere different or you need to start taking responsibility or finding some information that will help you make the changes and and this is what this hour is all about is giving them the information and the tools that they'll need if there's depression or anxiety or some mental illness in their lives what are the tools that they need and because I think knowledge is the most powerful thing, but acting on that knowledge is also very, very important. So we'll give the knowledge, but then it's up to them to basically do the acting. Mm. Because the knowledge will give you the tools and the strategies in order to do that, but you know, but it's the same as it. trying to get fit. It's the mm. same as trying to improve your body tone or something. You can sign up to a gym for a 12-month membership. And I think 90% of people that sign up to a gym expect to buy the biceps. They expect to buy the new butt. But you can't. So the well, hang on a second. That was not in the brochure. <laughs> I mean, the brochure that I saw had a great butt in there. And I, I'm convinced I was going to get that. Isn't that the way? But you know what I learned as a personal <laughs> trainer? Did I have to work for it? Oh, now they didn't say that in oh, the brochure? No. They did not say it was going to take me a year. No, 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 no. Do you understand what I have to put up with in this this studio? (laughs) But in all seriousness, we know that as trainers, as educators, as health instructors and all these things that we do, we can give you these tools and strategies, but Cindy is absolutely right. Unless you're willing to partake and participate and take action with it, then you might as well turn this episode off right now. So, Cindy, you know, I'm really curious as to how we actually got to this place. You know, I've, I've been reading a book um, called The Food Mood Solution, and it's been an absolute eye-opener in terms of um, 
the inhibitors and the enhancers that food actually, you know, the, the part that it actually plays in inhibiting our performance and enhancing our performance. And I've been reading a lot about um, neuronutrients, which is all about how amino acids and proteins and carbohydrates actually affect our neurotransmitters. Let's talk about how it starts in the first place, you know, because what we're talking about is the cure and the, and the prevention. But how, where does it actually start in the first place? I mean, how is our food a contributor to our very functionality on a day-to-day basis in the most simplistic form? Well, if you have a look back through evolution, and we've discussed this before, we have always eaten the same foods. They've been seasonal, they've been natural, uh, we've eaten meat, we were hunter-gatherers, or we also ate grain, we've eaten fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, eggs, you know, we were good at robbing nests for eggs. So these are the foods we've always eaten. And then what happened is that information and science became quite prolific, and what happened at that stage was they went we know better than nature we can do better than nature we can change and manipulate foods to be perfect for our body and so we started to manipulate like butter was no good so we we used margarine salt was no good so we manipulated the salt and said don't eat salt sugar was no good so we created new sugars you know even artificial sweeteners and then all of a sudden it became no longer just about information and science it became about money And food manufacturers realise they can make a food taste like a food but not be a food. And people don't even know that this is happening. So when you pick up a pack, you look at the nutritional panel and you look at the fat, salt and sugar and and as far as you're concerned, you're on a low-fat diet, it's got no fat in it, you can have it. But when you read the ingredients, it might have 50 ingredients and not one is real. And this is where it all happens. What do you mean by it's not real? Well, it could be an additive, a preservative, a flavouring, a colouring, a, um, a, what are they calling it now, nature-like substance. It could be a hydrogenated vegetable oil. It could be a homogenized Emulsifier, stabiliser. Emulsified stabilisers. Like, I've looked at a chocolate cake that I've got, like, in a grocery store. I've taken a photo of it, and it's cacao or cocoa flavouring. It's glucose syrup, which made from wheat, not even from sugar. There's um, colour in it that's not even the real cacao or the cocoa because there's a colour in it. And then there is a bulker and a thickener and a, and a this and a that. And so you actually read them and you go, Where, where's the real food? And it was through science, information, science thinking they can do better than nature, food manufacturers making a food cheap that wasn't a food but tasted like food, that we started to get not only physical problems but mental problems because there are certain additives, reservatives and flavourings that actually change the brain and the neurotransmitters of the brain. Sunny, can I just interrupt you there for a minute? How the heck did it get to that point? So, so obviously these scientists had to prove to boards or governing agencies or FDAs or whatever it is, they would have had to have proven that this was the best way to now grow our wheat or now to process sugar or whatever it is. It would have had to have got some approval by some sort of authorities in order for that to be passed. So how did those people get to make those decisions and on what knowledge and information did they base it on? Well, with food and with the science and um, information society that happened, there was this trend, as, just as we were talking before, to mechanise the body. We mechanise the heart, you go to your cardiologist, remember we said that? The same thing happened with food. We segmented the food into macronutrients and micronutrients. And the macronutrients were the, are the carbohydrates, your fats, and your uh, proteins. And your micronutrients are your vitamins and minerals. So they actually segmented everything into that. And then they, they said, well, when you get hypertension, salt's a problem. Or with high glucose problems or insulin problems, sugar's a problem. Or with kidney disease, protein's a problem. So what they did was they said, if you do this type of manipulation to a food, then everything will be perfect. So their main train of thought was macro, micro, fat, salt and sugar. So as long as everything was perfect in macro, micro, fat, salt and sugar... They knew they were doing the right thing, so they thought. And it's this train of thinking that has led us to what's happening today, where, you know, there's not one package you go and go out there and pick up an additive, or I mean a food, and not have an additive preservative flavouring in it. And even the simple additive of nitrates and nitrites, which is in our bacon and our cured meats, 
can have a psychological effect on a child or an adult mm. if they are sensitive to it. It can, within a two to eight hour period, it can change their personality completely. Some people can eat bacon and it won't even affect them. So we're kind of playing Russian roulette here. And the thing is, is that what, what can we eat and what can't we eat? Uh, and, and what additives can we have and not? And there are some countries that are banned, like food colours, because they cause hyperactivity in children. There's actually 10 years of research out of Southampton University that says this. Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, um, because we're Australians, I know what's happening here, have said, well, we don't agree with the research that Southampton University has done in the UK. We're not banning those six food colours. And those six food colours are in all our children's foods. 102, 110, 122, 117. You know, these are the numbers that have a direct link with hyperactivity in children. And, and there are other, like people are becoming really sensitive to foods, which then affects not only their brain, but their physical body. And this is why it's all happened. Look, I'm, I might not have the facts right on this, but there's a great movie that you can watch around the sugar thing called Sweet Misery. Um, it certainly will never be shown on television because it's so controversial. But I do recall, and, and so I, could I go one step further in saying that, that this whole food revolution, if you can call it that, is also very politi- politically based. Absolutely. Um, because just looking at aspartame, for instance... Um, and for anybody else out there that doesn't know who aspartame is, that's aspartame in another language. Yes, <laughs> yes I was about to say aspartame. She's a Kiwi. <laughs> Aspartame um, was actually taken off the um, the shelves. It was it was banned as a food substance. I can't remember the exact years, but I do know when it was around when Ronald Reagan was in um, Parliament as a president. Um, it was taken off the shelves because of these linked diseases and, and, and problems that people were having associated it, the worst being death, but there's around 90-odd um, different reactions people have with aspartame. So it was taken off the market. There was such an uproar in America that the public demanded it because they loved this idea of eating sugary tasting food without the calories. So there was such an uproar, but it was very hard to get it reinitiated. The, the, the year, within 12 months of Ronald Reagan be re, being reinstigated as President of the United States of America, aspartame came back on the market. The people that backed his campaign were the manufacturers of aspartame. So that's when I look at things like that and when I see changes out there, as you said before, knowledge is powerful. When you, Who's going to tell us this? The food authorities don't want us to know all this information. Mm. So when you start finding out information like this, if nothing else, what it's done for me is start to question the so-called authorities. I might not know all the answers. I might not know why or how. But meeting someone like you, Cindy, and certainly you, Karen, and questioning things, I I find I question all the time now. And that would be one of my biggest pieces of advice in this podcast. You don't have to be an expert or a qualified neuroscientist or a a food manufacturer to understand that some things aren't always perfect. No, I I agreed. Um, And what they did, it was actually saccharin. Saccharin. It was saccharin, not um, aspartame. Uh, No, I just heard the wellness guys talk about it as well. And when you watch it on Sweet Misery, they talk about aspartame. Yeah, yeah. saccharin, because I knew they did saccharin. And I do know that in 1986, the American Medical Association actually said and publicly said that aspartame was the new healthy alternative to sugar. Mm. So they were actually saying this is great. And I noticed that the Diabetic Association endorses aspartame. Mm. And I also look at who's funding them and I'm very um, disgusted by that as well. The thing is is that we are in a, a place where there is so much information there and it's confusing. So who's right? Is the Diabetic Association, right? The Heart Foundation, the American Medical Association, or are we right? Well, but I, th- but I think we've got to go with the very foundation of where the testing is being done. You know, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I'm just reading something here as we're talking that aspartame was used as a sweetener in soft drinks, and it's very similar to phenylalanine, and it's what produces anxiety. Now, I know that aspartame is in that is in those artificial sweeteners that you use for your coffee and your tea that you buy in Woolies. Mm. It's in all of those, and it's in a lot of the... Um, anything, my rule of thumb is pretty much anything that says diet, zero... It's got um, all of that Sugar-free, that's, that's the base of it, yeah. But it affects the neurotransmitters that causes anxiety. 
And science actually knows it. They've actually done the research and they know it. Yet there's no authority that's actually taking responsibility for the health of human beings in today's society. That's just one. And that means we have to take responsibility. Too People right. out there have to become educated and take responsibility and not listen to propaganda and, and have a philosophy about what they're consuming or they'll be zigzagging around the supermarket going, well, I, I was told this is good. No, no, this is better. Oh, no, I should be on low fat. No, I shouldn't eat saturated fat or I should have aspartame or saccharin. And you ha- I think in the end what happens is that you have to take responsibility. You cannot believe authorities because we don't know who's funding these authorities like i look at the foundation uh, i look at the baker institute you know the baker institute is seen as this independent institute for medical research yet i looked at all its funders they're all drug companies that's sickening look look you know the same thing's happening in the skincare industry where people want to call themselves organic organic is the big word and or that they're a natural chemical free organic skincare range Uh, They might not have got organic certification from one board. So I know of companies that have gone out and created their own organic certification board and then put their company in under that in order to get it through. So, you know, you can't even believe the stories that we're telling. I mean, don't even believe what we're saying. You know, like really, I think the key to this is is really researching. but, But my question to both of you is it's great because we're in what I call a wonderful circle of influence where... It's not just me feeling this and questioning it. I've then got someone like you, Cindy, who's got the science, the knowledge. I then can turn to Karen, who backs it up with the, what's happening with my brain and physiology. And then if I still don't have it with you, I know a number of different therapists and med- holistic medical integrative doctors and people that I can ask. What about the people out there that have one or two of those? Or like, What's your advice on how do you find more? How do you create it? Is it organic? Does it just happen because this is now the circle you're in? Or is it listening to things like this? Is it just doing the research? Is it again, or is it again coming back to what you said, Karen, that at the end of the day, be bloody responsible? Well, you know, it's interesting that you should actually, actually say that because I have a really dear friend of mine who has cancer, breast cancer, and her doctor won't treat her anymore because she's made a conscious decision that she's going to heal herself. So he won't treat her. He won't see her anymore. And this guy is uh, one of those medical integrative doctors. You know, he's one of those good guys who does the whole, the holistic healing. But the medical board has discovered that he sometimes doesn't prescribe drugs. So now he's actually running the risk of being shut down and being disbarred. So now he's actually said to this friend of mine, no, I'm not going to treat you anymore. You have to now go out into the big wide world and go and look after yourself because I can't run the risk of losing my license to practice. So now she's out there on her own and I was at a, um, a, a function and she was there and she brought all her own food and, you know, all of that with her. And I said to her, you know, how do you do this? I mean, how are you feeling about it? So she said, you know, I'm an island in the stream. I'm all alone, I'm completely isolated and I have nobody who supports me and I have nobody who I can share this journey with who helps me along the process. And, you know, I I said to her, well, you know, you need to come and hang out with us because we, you know, we're all along the same vein. I think the thing is, is what Cindy said, is you've got to have a philosophy. You've got to come up with your own philosophy. And let me just assure our listeners that you don't go from zero to hero overnight your philosophy evolves. The more educated you become, the more clear you become about what's acceptable to you and what's not acceptable to you. We're sitting here, three women, extraordinarily passionate, and I can feel a sense of fury inside of myself even (laughs) as I'm sitting here having this conversation because I'm so disappointed that other human beings have, and they're in a position of authority, but have such disregard for life. When their position of authority is under the pretense that they're supposed to have full regard for life. But they actually have such disregard for life that their position of authority is being abused as they stand at the helm educating general society about what's acceptable in terms of our consumption. Is that their fault, though? Well, I look at it, I like to look at it in the context of if they knew better, they would do better. Yeah, yeah I agree. Mm. I, I actually but, believe they actually believe this stuff. They yes. do, they do. But, but how is it? a drug is better than looking at holistically at, at food and mindset and exercise and sleep and, you know, all of that. So they go, oh, here, have a drug, you know, you're depressed, have this. But, Cindy, my question around that is how is it that we as lay people, have been able to go out there and do the research on both sides and we have clarity. 
Those are people that are standing in the positions of authority, yet they've not done the research from both sides of the coin, yet they stand there with all authority. I, I find myself completely perplexed with that. And, and because majority of society either doesn't have the time, the inclination, or doesn't know that they don't know. You know, this, that, I think that's a huge, big thing. We don't know what we don't know. But what I'm finding, Karen, is, is with this information, the more aware and the more mm. in tune and the more educated I become, when I do challenge someone with a degree, and this is where I admire you, Cindy, that you've oh, got yeah. the degree to turn around with it. When I challenge someone who has a degree and I don't, um, they look down their nose at me as if I'm some pleb that's got no idea. Um, I, 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 there's a number of people out there who I totally respect um, in the health world, and yet they don't have degrees, and yet they f- I feel they have as much, if not more, knowledge around a particular topic than anyone else that I've met. You know, I, do, do you think we need the degree in order to have the authority? I, I actually think the degree is needed so that you don't have people saying to you, you don't have a degree. Mm. I actually believe that some people without degrees are more knowledgeable on a subject than people with the degree. Because what a degree does is it, it gives you the know-how on how to go out and find information. Because I don't, like what I did in my degree, six years of university, I like go, I don't remember much at all. It's what it taught me was to go, how do I find that information? And what it also did to me is it institutionalised me. So I was being taught by teachers who had a belief. And I started to jack the system at about fourth year university. I started to go, but I don't agree with that. But in those first three years, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was just nodding my head. Yeah, yeah. And you absorb like a sponge because you have total trust in your, your professors and their beliefs and their knowledge. So to have a, to have a degree gives you credibility. Mm-hmm. But that's it. To have a degree and not go outside the, the formation of the institution, you, to me, you just all you are is institutionalised. You haven't really got um, the real full meaning of what this is all about because you have to go outside that. That just teaches you how to find things but that I wonder, you go out and seek. But I wonder if they think there is another side. And that goes back to what you were saying, that they, they do what they do because they don't know any better. Yeah, no. And they have a, a full belief in it. Like, mm. I do not believe that... Um, doctors prescribe medications without the belief that they actually do work. Mm. For the most yeah. part. Yeah. For the most part, I think that that's all they've taught in the institution is diagnose and treat, diagnose and treat, diagnose and treat. You know, and diagnose means, dia meaning two, agnosia meaning don't know, two people who don't know. Treatment is treating the mind. That's what treatment means. I'm treating the mind. Treat, you know, it's mm. like, so when you look back at the etymology of these words, you realise that it was two people who don't know treating the mind. <laughs> oh, God. Run. Everybody run. <laughs> I always saw treat as looking after people and treating them. Oh, that's a bit cute. So if, if people do have an issue with anxiety and depression, um, and, and some people have circumstantial depression, where something has happened to them, and, and Karen, you know this all too well, where something has happened to them and they're depressed because of that. But why can somebody have the same situation happen to them and get through it while others can't? So I was listening the other night, um, and you know the whole issue about all these guns and the killings and all the things that have been happening around America over the last 12 months to 24 months or even 15 years. And they were talking about one of the, the particular gunmen having a circumstantial depression and being on um, drugs because of that. And they'd lost a couple of uh, people in their lives. And I'm thinking, well, I lost five really important women in my life, but, yeah, was there depression in my my life? So my thoughts were this. If your mind and your body is at full function because you are eating the right foods, you're not eating the additive preservatives and flavourings, can you survive a trauma better than somebody who's eating all of the additives, preservatives and flavourings and cuisines, you know, homogenised milks, hydrogenated vegetables, additives, preservatives and flavourings, etc. You know, that's my question. And the more I ask that question, the more it's being answered. Because it's now, and, and I love science for this fact, is that when I'm out there looking to clarify what is happening in my mind and my thoughts, I go to science to see if there is somebody out there that has actually had this hypothesis, tested the hypothesis and come up with a result. And, and we're finding that now. You know, the information out there at the moment 
how the mind and the body are so connected and how the food that we consume affects the brain within two hours of consumption, sometimes within 24 hours of consumption. So, Well, we know certain smells can affect you within seconds. seconds exactly. Mm. And we also know this, that the gut and what is happening in the gut is completely connected to what's happening in the brain. And Karen, you, you know, you've been doing a lot of research on that, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I think that, um, what did we say, uh, 90% of serotonin exists inside of the neurotransmitters in the gut and 50% of dopamine exists inside of the gut. And it's an amazing, um, it's amazing piece of research that the gut and the heart can actually function independently of the brain. There's a nerve called the vagus nerve that actually connects the heart and connects the gut to the brain to be able to transmit signals. But what they found in, in um, patients who've needed a heart transplant, once the vagus nerve is actually severed in order to create the heart transplant, uh, the vagus nerve actually can't be reconnected through medical uh, procedures. It can't be reconnected. It's reconnected itself over about 10 to 15 years of somebody who's had a heart transplant. But that 10 to 15 years, that heart is functioning independently of the brain. The brain is not able to transmit any information down to the heart to tell it what to do, how to do its job. There's no connection to the brain. The gut's exactly the same. The gut can function independently of the brain. And they call the gut the second brain because of that. And the heart also. But the brain and the gut cannot work independently of food. They must have this food. Absolutely. And you talked about dopamine um, and noradrenaline and serotonin. Yeah. And dopamine is is the neurotransmitter that really sparks the brain up, gets it alert. That's the one you want when you want to be active mm. and when you want your brain to be active. And, and, and that's dopamine and noradrenaline. Whereas serotonin, it doesn't make the neurons um, transmitter or the neurons fire as fast. And so it's interesting to note that there are foods that actually increase dopamine and other foods that will increase serotonin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. my question to you, just basing on my feelings, the serotonin-enhancing feelings food, is that a medical term? Um, <laughs> Let's go with it. Yeah. Sounds good. So foods that enhance serotonin release, I would imagine the calming ones are your com- well, c- carbohydrates, things that when I eat, I then within an hour go, oh, yeah, I feel and you really want yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what it's doing. Mm. Yeah. And and protein. The dopamine. That is for dopamine, which gets you alert. And you know what we do in the morning to get ourselves going? We have we carbohydrates, have carbohydrates in the morning. <laughs> you know, look, I'll defy anybody to do this. For the next two weeks, do not have breakfast cereal. Do not have anything like a toast or a carbohydrate. Have eggs. Have eggs and rocket and tomato or something like that, you know. Or if you want leftover meat from the night before, eat that. Do that for two weeks. Then on the 13th day, have, well, that's 14th, 15th day, too. I'm really, you can see I had carbohydrates just before we started. (laughs) (laughs) Then on the 15th day, what you do is you have your your old-fashioned breakfast cereal. I'll guarantee you will yawn within an hour. Mm. And you won't realise that that's what you've been doing every day of your life. Is, And then you'll go have a cup of coffee because that's the only thing that's going to get your brain started again. Can I take you both back a little bit to what you said something before around, you know, people have these struggles or traumas in their lives, therefore it creates a, a, some sort of stress reaction in the body and therefore they reach for maybe carbohydrates or wrong foods or perhaps, in the worst case, guns. Um, you know, I, when I was in India last year, I, I met His Holiness, and, and this might be going a little bit spiritual, but he said, in order to have joy and harmony in the life, one must experience and understand struggle and challenge. And I think in sometimes our Western philosophy, we look at struggle, challenges, pain as an interruption, as a it's not fair, as a how come me, why me situation. And I get that when we're in those situations, it's, it's hard to think really clearly or to see the gift in anything. But I've noticed the people that have gone through struggles and changes and challenge and those sorts of things are often the ones that question more or become more aware or become very present to the joy and the satisfaction in their lives like good food like good health like focusing on meditation or things that actually support the brain and mind to switch off 
So I would like to even suggest more so that even before we start eating is really looking at the mindset of who we are and why we choose certain foods and how we see struggle and challenges is why do we reach for a packet of Tim Tams or a bucket of ice cream or alcohol or drugs when we're going through challenge in those moments instead of oh my gosh, this is the time I really need to be supporting my health and nutrition and well-being. That seems a little bit abnormal to me. Not many people think, oh my gosh, what can I do for myself to support myself? Most people support, they go, oh, come on, I'll take you out for a wine or let's go and, you know, let's party. Or I don't know, sometimes we do a lot to avoid the pain. I agree with you. You know, um, we do. We have a drink or two or three or four or take a drug or take an antidepressant or take an anti-anxiety or whatever we're taking instead of... You have to experience it at some time. So why numb yourself through that? Why not experience that, get through it, and and surely you become a better person at that. But you're right, we are conditioned to numb that pain. We're, We're not conditioned to see something bad as something that was maybe a gift in our lives. Mm. You know, I, I often you know think of the death of my, my mum and my sister, and I do see that as a gift. I see it as a gift. Yes, I miss them, surely, but I see it as a gift because I wouldn't be thinking the way I think right now, spiritually, if it wasn't for them. Mm. You know, it just, you know, I, I believe, Karen, you would probably think the same way. You know, like... I, yeah, I think... You know, I think that we're conditioned um, to a large extent. I think that we're conditioned to a large extent to avoid responsibility. It keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? Look, you know, it does. It, I, I, you know, I think it doesn't matter how you slice it. When you think about us growing up, you know, we do something bad, we get in trouble for it. We do something bad, we get in trouble. We do something bad, we get in trouble. And we grow up all of our lives knowing that if I do something bad, I'm going to get in trouble. So we do everything that we possibly can to either not do something bad or if we do do something bad, hide it like hell so that <laughs> nobody finds out and then we don't get in trouble. Our whole life is conditioned around not being in trouble, therefore not being responsible. And blaming a bad day or, or PMT Absolutely. or your hormones or, or husbands your husband or, or children your kids or, fatigue. or somebody it. cut me off in traffic mm. or... Well, yeah, we, we, do, we, we, we go in search of a reason why we've done something that's perceived to be wrong because we don't want to get in trouble. So we're constantly looking to avoid being responsible. Because we don't want to ever do something wrong. We don't ever want to make the bad choices. We don't ever want to make a wrong choice. We're conditioned with it right from the time that we're children and we don't really get that it's linked. You know, we don't really get that um, being responsible is linked to our ability to make our own choices. We would much rather have somebody else tell us what to do and blame them if it's wrong rather than us tell us what to do and then take responsibility. We really do look for outside uh, vehicles to take the responsibility away from us because, let's face it, if we knew better, we would do better. So we're quite happy as humans to walk around oblivious and to allow other people to give us our direction, particularly when it comes to our health, because we believe that, you know, traditionally, we believe that we are just at the mercy of whatever illness is inflicted upon us, our cancers and our, you know, our colds and flus. And, you know, we just feel like we're at the mercy of a bug that's going around. You're lucky or you're not lucky, you know? That's exactly right. You're lucky you haven't had cancer. You're unlucky because you got cancer. It's like a, a throw of the dice. Yeah. You know, my, my, sorry, yeah. Oh, just, because I just got this this epiphany. Epiphany. (laughs) I just went, you know, that whole thing about, now I've forgotten my epiphany. Oh, (laughs) darling. But anyway, the whole thing about luck and not lucky Mm. is about not taking responsibility. Yeah. And I guess we could say that number one point in this is if you are going through depression or anxiety or a mental disorder of some sort, number one, take responsibility for you know, for it. Would you say that would be number one? Look, I would say that would be number one, but what I would actually say that there will probably be a caveat around that because when a person is going through depression or anxiety, the last thing, the last thing they want to hear is somebody saying, well, you know what? You can be responsible for this. I agree. That's the last (laughs) thing a person who's going through that wants because the person who's depressed or going through anxiety really wants all responsibility removed from them. That and again, this is going to be very controversial, so I'm expecting the phones to ring hot and the chats to, to go nuts. But, the, you know, a person who is depressed and a person who is going through that 
ultimately wants a way of exiting. They don't want to be participating and responsibility is the last thing that they're going to take. So, But doesn't that then come back to understanding and, and stepping outside of the conforming ideas that we shouldn't have pain and actually realising that this is okay? That it's it maybe it's not that it's okay, but this is normal. It's it's a process you have to go through. You can't just ignore the pain or the anguish that you're in. Of course, you can't just say, "Oh gosh, I'm not depressed," because those sorts of people are scary as well. The ones that go, "Oh no, everything's fine," you know, and mm. it's not. And at some point, they'll have a break, maybe. But what I would suggest is, is I know this probably sounds very different, but another way where I started thinking differently was with my grandmother driving along in the car one day down the highway. Now, what would you both think if some jerk in a ute has now cut you off? What's your first reaction? I swear. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to be really good about that, and I keep thinking... Maybe, I don't know what's happening in their life. But this is my point. Yeah. And you stole my punchline. But that's okay, because I'm glad (laughs) to hear it. But normally our first reaction, and I've driven with you, Cindy, when someone's done this, so you're trying to sound really responsible. She's lying. I said I'm trying. I know. I said I'm trying. What we have to understand is that, you know, I was with my grandmother, and this is exactly what happened to me just, you know, a few years ago. And this guy literally cut me off. And my instant reaction was, jerk, you know, what a... My normal, because my dad did it, my mum's done it, you know, I've grown up with people that always do it, so that was my conditioning. Until my beautiful little nine-year-old grandmother sitting next to me went, oh, I wonder what's going on in his life to make him drive like that. I hope his wife's okay. Mm. When she said that in that moment, I don't know what struck a chord for me, but I actually now question that whenever someone's angry at me or when someone is eating badly or when someone is saying something that I don't agree with or they're very aggressive about it is now again taking responsibility I don't have to take my resp- their responsibility for their anger or their reaction or the way they eat and drink and I just need to be responsible for how I react to it so again going back to the thing of depression like you say Karen we can't turn around to someone with any condition be it a mental or physical illness or disability but it's more about being a guide or a support because when they're ready to hear it they will hear it so I guess we could put a second point in there that when they're ready is, you know, we hang out with each other mm. because we bounce off each other. And I know people love hanging out with you, Karen. I've seen them at your conferences. That's because I'm so funny. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, they, and, and gorgeous. I know that, and I've seen Kim at her conferences and people just want to be with you because you've got the tools, the strategies, you know, that help people and I know that people really enjoy coming to my conferences because I have a lot of knowledge about food and it gives them those ahas they go oh I never thought of that so when you're hanging out with each other and and other people hanging out with and learning I think that that's a really good place to be and if you do not have anybody then join us join us on this podcast and join us in our seminars that we do well too right and I think because we are such fabulous company (laughs) we are we're fun no we're fabulous we are such fabulous company I think it's just absolutely spectacular that we've decided to join forces and create our awaken the change within series of events you know I think that because you know this is the thing you have to surround yourself with like-minded people in order to be supported through your change. If you're in an environment where people disagree with your, your, your new philosophy, mm-hmm. your new desires to take responsibility, if you're in an environment with people who don't share that same passion for research and understanding and education that you now have, you need to surround yourself with people who do because it can be very confronting to all of a sudden come home and, you know, throw out the barbecue sauce and throw out the bacon and to throw out the chips and the chocolates. It can be quite confronting for the rest of the people in your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to have um, uh, people around you that, that support your change, not just for the day, but on an ongoing basis. Because one thing I've discovered, and particularly now, you know, with putting the Awaken the Change Within events together, I'm really realising that it's an evolution you know, as soon as we reach one step of growth and one step of understanding and education, there's another step to be achieved. And then another step, and then another step, and then another step. And it just continues in terms of this, this, this educational process. It's a beautiful journey, but I can tell you one thing. I'm so glad 
that I have you girls in my life to support the change for me. You've been doing it a lot longer than what I have. And to be able to have somebody that I can look up to and use as an example of possibility that my life can one day become is extraordinary. Yeah, I, I think it's the greatest gift. And I think one of the greatest ways that you know how you want someone like that in your life is when you're sitting in the audience or you're listening to something or reading something. One of the questions that I always end up saying or statements I make is, I want what he's got. I want what she's got. What is it? And what is she doing or how is he doing it in order to have that in his life? Because there's this spark, there's this dynamicism, there's this health, there's this vitality. And I would challenge anybody that would choose to have people in their life that you, you say, oh, hi, Cindy, how are you? Oh. You know, life sucks, it's hard. Or, hi, Cindy, how are you? Oh, my gosh, it's great. Or or even if it's not great, I've had a bad day, but you're not going to believe it, I could see the funny side, you know. I think sometimes in life we can make it so serious and so critical of ourselves and one another that we lose the potential for gaining our own knowledge and independence and, again, back to responsibility. No, I agreed. And I, what I find what's really good is that we're not static. Um, every day I learn something new. Mm. Uh, whether it's from you guys, whether it's from a book I've read, whether it's from an article I'm listening to or, or even a podcast I'm listening to, I'm always learning. And so, as Karen said, that this is an evolution. You just don't get everything in one podcast, in one three-day seminar, but we'll give tools that will help you to further your education. And it doesn't have to be a university degree. It can be just education around what we're doing. So being with like-minded people is really important. I think food is a priority. Mm. Go to Whole Foods. That's number one. If you're having problems with mental um, issues, depression, anxiety, or any of them, even your kids, you need to go to Whole Foods. And from Whole Foods, we can go from there. You know, you'll learn what foods increase dopamine and, and noradrenaline in the brain versus foods that will increase serotonin versus foods that will sabotage your brain and your thought processes versus foods like coffee you know a lot of people go is coffee good is it not but coffee has its place in 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 your brain because it's one of the most amazing brain um stimulants stimulants it does it alerts the brain so much it makes the neurons fire very fast so it can have a place in in a healthy diet and like we look at wine and I guess alcohol. you're not talking instant no. sort of like a teaspoon of this with three sugars and milk no. yeah no. no it's because you need to clarify that with coffee because a lot of coffee drinkers will think oh good I'm off the hook and you're not talking about having eight cups of coffee a day and you're not talking about using it as a pep me up because you've just had the carbs that have dropped you down <laughs> so now you're going to have a coffee to pep you back up I'm assuming you're talking about it from a health perspective <laughs> just clarify that one for me <laughs> did you get all that? <laughs> that was chapter two in the book <laughs> But I'm serious, you're talking quality, organic, freshly ground, roasted coffee beans. I mean, I don't drink coffee, and now I'm thinking, gosh, I need to. But I have a different reaction. <laughs> you don't that. need to. <laughs> I want what you've got. God, help us all. <laughs> she was on coffee. Give us a break. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, you were talking about alcohol. Well, you know, we could keep going. Mm. Um, but that's something that uh, is a huge topic about... Each food, like what do fruit and veggies do? What does this type of meat do? What does you know this carb do? What does a refined carb do? And and it's it's continuous, and it's not just about what it does to the brain. It's about what it does to the gut that then affects the brain. So mm-hmm. there are so many, and there's exotoxins that we can talk about. So food is a huge issue, and if you have not changed your diet or changed what you're eating or the way you think about your food, then that would be a priority. That would be another priority. That would be number three. Now, number four. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Cindy, there is to become a researcher. Don't just accept the status quo. Don't accept the norm because the norm we know is fooey. Fooey, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> coffee that's, a, that's a technical term, technical actually. Term. Yes, that's yes. A new brand name, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But it is, it's fooey. Yeah. I mean, you know, everything that we've been taught and everything that we've been educated with around food become a researcher question it and that's certainly been something that I've taken on for myself I don't just accept that yogurt's yogurt I don't just accept that um, you know lettuce is lettuce anymore I'm actually researching and making sure that my lettuce when I buy it you know doesn't come in a bag because the, the bag's been blown up with with um, some gas some kind of gas I bought mangoes the other day and mangoes get gassed 
Can you believe it? They gassed the mangoes to make them ripe. I knew they did that with bananas, but I didn't know that happened with mangoes. So now I've got to go and try and find gas-free mangoes. Give me a break. <laughs> I mean, really. So, you know, become a researcher. Yeah. Don't accept the norm as the norm. Make sure that you're educated on everything. When you're buying yogurt, make sure that it's the right yogurt. When you're buying your, your meats, don't buy them in that nanotechnology wrapped up stuff you know investigate everything leave no stone unturned even when it comes to your poo <laughs> you and your poo oh. <laughs> you know karen a lot of people don't have time to investigate so i know for me that's all i do mm. i investigate food and we are so grateful and we so, so love you so for that people can can come you you know mm. you investigate kim all about skincare mm. all about all of those things and karen your investigations on the mind and there could be investigators on chiropractic like the wellness boys you know so mm. you go to these key areas yep. rather than having to sift through what i do in a day like i'll do 12 hours of research in a day and i might just do it on one topic mm. uh, and so it's it's really important that don't get too bogged down unless it's an interest of yours, but find key people that you can trust. Mm. And when you find those key people that you can trust, then you can you know, get on the bandwagon. Mm. I, think getting, I think getting on the bandwagon, be prepared for controversy. Mm. You know, like arm yourself with some self-care strategies that actually support you when people challenge your new discoveries. Because I think often when we're going down this path, why you can feel like an island in the stream is because you actually don't have that, that understanding yet of how to create that network of people around you. So I would say in your becoming a researcher, you know, be aware, be armed with the controversy that will come with that because it's not normal to be a researcher, mm. really. Mm. And the last point um, that I think is important for people who are listening to this as far as, you know, getting over mental illness or any you know, problems they're having is that rituals, you know, rituals are really important habits. They make you, you don't have to think anymore because a habit is, is a connection of neurons that it, it stops you having to think about it. So the first thing is to break the habit. You have to start thinking about it again. But then create the new habit and the new rituals. And, and we have been talking about those rituals. Mm. And, and I think when I look at everything we've talked about today, you know, number one, responsibility. Number two, um, Hanging out. Hanging out. I was thinking, thank you. Hanging out with the right people, yeah. creating a beautiful circle of influence. Number three, food, which I think is probably one of the biggest. Becoming a researcher. Even this in itself is a ritual. Um, listening to podcasts, reading certain books is a ritual. You know, I find I have rituals all the time, every day, that are certain things. I know, Karen, you'll love this. Every morning, the minute I wake up, I know number two is going to come right there, right <laughs> then. Um, and it's usually between 4 and 4.30, just letting you all know. Um, yes, I know. I've shared a room with her. <laughs> 4.30 in the morning, I'm woken to this almighty I don't know what. <laughs> Speak to Damien about poos and you'll understand that poo, there's poo and there's poo. There's Damien good is very passionate about poo. <laughs> Has he not got a whole chart on poo? Yes, you can download it. Poo will also tell you how your digestive system's working and how your mind's working. Yeah. So and Karen, I, you need to get into this. Well, well, I am starting to come good. to terms with good. it, hence why the conversation and topic is coming up all the time. I'm not quite there yet. Like we've said, it's an evolution with me. <laughs> She never used to be able to even say the word. It's funny. But just (laughs) very quickly on that number two ritual, you know, so many people I know don't even... Moving on. Well, yeah, but moving on from it is that some people don't even have them. They they don't know the regularity of it. That's what I'm saying is that you actually have to be aware that it should be a ritual. Um, Things like exercise should become a ritual. And and I don't look at it as a have to. I look at it as a want to, as a need to, as a desire to. Because for me, that habit that you're talking about creating, I don't exercise every single day but I know if I haven't exercised for a couple of days my body starts giving me signs that I need to get out there fresh air change the mind give myself the ability to actually get some fresh air into that into that system so I think rituals and that's of course for me where I use my oils a lot I look at food a lot of time as a ritual so for, you know every time I prepare a meal there's a beautiful ritual around it how I prepare it on the table whenever we turn up at things like this into our <laughs> studio with our gorgeous foods that we all bring out and share there's even us having coconut water at every single podcast we've done, Karen, you bring out a glass of coconut water. Like that into itself, I was looking at it today going, wow, this is one of our beautiful, healthy rituals. When we get together, my anchor is coconut water, which is fantastic, and we're having a wonderful experience. So I know we each have our own rituals, but I think once you start becoming aware and creating them, they don't have to be massive. They don't have to be huge, everything, you know, like going to a spa type of ritual, but daily rituals that make you think, even you know, a squeeze of lemon every morning before you drink is 
a fantastic uh, before you eat is a fantastic ritual to start the mind body gut heart soul mind head thing all talking <laughs> so you know i think what we've done here today is we've covered you know a fair amount of information we've really kind of you know touched on a whole bunch of different topics but you know the truth of the matter is this is a topic that we could talk about for weeks and days so you know i think what we've done because you know because we can't cover everything about the whole mind body connection and how it all works together and we can't do it all just in one podcast in just one hour so we've actually created a live event and you've heard us talk about it already today and it's called awaken the change within so we want you to guys to to consider this your personal invitation you know an invitation from each one of us to explore how we can start to awaken a new change and a whole new philosophy around our health so you're personally invited to join us at the next awaken the change within uh, event now it's a two and a half day event so to find out more about it go to the website at um, changinghabits.com.au write that down the website is changinghabits.com.au click on the link that says events and look for the dates and the venues that are near you because we're running these events constantly Look for the Awaken the Change Within event on the mind, food, and mood um, programs. Go and have a look at that. You're going to find a whole raft of information about the event as well as how you can attend it at, at a place that's near you. Now, this has been an extraordinary podcast, and as usual, it's been an absolute treat to share the last hour with you girls. Absolute mm. wonder. Feel the same, though. I always learn. I always learn stuff. There's always something more to explore, isn't there? It's fascinating. Mm. I'm loving it. So join us here next week as your professional reminders are here on Up For A Chat and help us to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.